Our oldest child, Ian, whom you saw up here just a second ago, was born in St. Louis uh, just five months before we first came here while I was still a seminary student. And one of the many challenges that came my way as an expectant father is trying to figure out how to name a person. I could just not get comfortable with the fact that it was my job to give a person their name. Uh, You know, naming trends and fashions come and go, but a name is kind of forever. And uh, I just could not make peace. This this person has to have a name. And uh, Susie and I are going to have to figure out what that name is. So like any good seminary student that spent a lot of time learning languages and memorizing vocabulary, I started looking up words and meanings and histories of various names and biblical names. And at last, I came across the name Yohanan. <laughs> it appears once or twice in the Old Testament, and it means literally, God is gracious, or Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He is gracious. And I th- thought, if there's one thing I want my son to know, I want him to know that. Whether he walks with the Lord or strays away, that his whole life he would be just a word away from being reminded that God is gracious, that it might be for him an identity, that he might know who he is and the people that he's a part of and what's true about the world. But you can't really name a person Yochanan. But thankfully for me, uh, The people at the time of the New Testament also liked the name a lot, and so they transliterated it from Hebrew into Greek, and it came out as Iones. And of course, everything in the New Testament found its way into European culture, and so Iones got transliterated into German as Johann, and into French as Jean, and Spanish as Juan, and Russian as Ivan or Ivan, and uh, in English with a hard J as John, and for the really intense people far up north, the Celts, as Owen, Ewan, Ian, and Ian. And so we found our name. Uh, Susie and I both felt pretty attached to our sort of British-English history, and so the name seemed to fit. And uh, my mom's side of the family is also from England, uh, the Remingtons, and I felt like I had inherited something good from them, and so that was the middle name. And uh, I'll never forget when he was born in the hospital, and they cleaned him off and handed him to me. And I looked at him, and he opened his eyes, uh, these bright little eyes peering at me as if from another world. And I looked into them, and I said, Ian Remington Thompson. Sorry, I didn't, <clears throat> didn't see that coming. Ian Remington Thompson, child of the covenant, welcome to the world. And I said it over and over again because I was excited to give him, in the best of my ability, a name that came with a meaning and a place and an identity. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, names always have meanings, they come with identity. Uh, In the Old Testament, they actually didn't even need to be translated. You just called the, the person by their name. That's, that's, that's the father of many nations, Abraham. 
Uh, but it's a concept that I don't know is entirely lost on us today, that we still live with this desire to have a name, to have an identity and a meaning. It's why there's a whole multi-billion dollar industry around name and brand recognition and how for famous people their name becomes a brand. I heard a news story this last week about how the brand, the Michael Jordan brand, is almost certainly going to outlive the person, Michael Jordan. Uh, it's why advertisers more recently have, have changed their focus intentionally. They no longer sell products. They sell an identity. They sell a way of being. This last week I saw a commercial, and uh, the plot basically went like this. You're an adventurous, exploratory person, aren't you? When you were a child, you went outside and you played and you explored and you got to know the world. And there's scenes of children playing and digging in dirt and throwing water in the air. You know, and then now you see suits and ties and it says, and then you grew up. And in your corporate world, you're a little more restrained. But you're still that person inside, aren't you? You're still an adventurous, playful person. You can still get out. You can go places. You can see and explore the world wherever you want. And you can use and have the tools that will get you there. And one of those tools is a Jeep. (laughs) Put differently, we are so desirous to know who we are to have some sort of firm and settled identity that it almost feels comforting for us to borrow identity from something else that seems more solid, like a Jeep. I don't know who I am, but I know what Jeep is about. And if I had one of those, maybe then I could know who I was. I would be that sort of person. I'd be a Jeep sort of person, an iPhone sort of person, a Starbucks sort of person. It's become uh, a little bit of a tradition to have me uh, do the sermon the Sunday after Christmas, the last Sunday of the year, to give uh, Todd a well-deserved one-Sunday break with his family after uh, uh, a thoughtful Advent series and Christmas Eve sermon. Uh, And I've started to think of it as a little bit of a special time, uh, a time to share something significant at the end of the year. Last year, I shared with you what the Lord had been doing in my heart Uh, that last year in understanding his mission and what he's doing in the world. And this year, I decided about nine months ago, when we printed up the scripture cards, that I wanted to share for you a message that I heard a little over ten years ago uh, from Michael Kelly, my pastor, who's in college, that I have not forgotten. And I wish that I remembered it more than I did. And so I can't think of any other way to share it with you other than to take his same thought and to sort of reheat it and share it with us today. And that thought is the good news of the white stone and the new name. It's really just the last verse, really the last half verse in our passage, where Jesus himself speaks to a struggling church and gives them a picture of the future of what will happen in heaven, if you can imagine a scene where Jesus, at the end of the age, comes to each one of us 
and hands us a white stone with a new name, a name filled with meaning and identity, and looks you in the eye, and for the first time, you know who you really are. And everything that happened all those years finally makes sense. It may help to understand this to back up a little bit and take a look at the biblical view of names and the history. I mentioned already that in the Bible, names always have meanings. Adam, our father, means man. It also means, comes from the word for red, because he was taken from the red soil. Adam is the first man, and Eve means the mother of all living. Christ himself gave people names or changed them when uh, Abram and uh, Sarah were a little bit too surprised at God's good plan and had a little bit too much difficulty believing that it would really happen. They laughed. And so Jesus said, okay, your son gets to be, he laughed. I get the last laugh because the goodness of you having a child happened. Sometimes he changes name. Abram means father. And Jesus says, that's, that's not good enough. Actually, you're going to be Abraham, father of many nations. A name he gave him before he was father of any. Jacob means deceiver. And after the Lord had worked with him a good long while and a good many years, the Lord said, you are no longer a deceiver. You are now one who has struggled with God. You are Israel. And who can forget Petros, the rock, Peter, the rock, on whom Jesus will build his church. All these names carry with them an identity about who the person is. And it's important for us to see that identity is actually not just about who the person is, but about the role they get to play in God's story. That for Abraham, his, his life and joy and identity become about the place that God gave for him, created for him in his storyline, that Abraham got to be the father of many nations. He was the one who believed and had it counted to him as righteousness. And so all of us who believe are his children by faith. And Peter, the role he gets to play as the rock, the foundation of the church, he confesses for the first time, you are the Christ. And that confession becomes the rock on which the church is built. For them, as well as for us, as we'll see, our identity and our joy ultimately comes in the place that God created for us in his grand story and the role that we get to play in bringing glory to Christ and sharing that with one another. If we return to our scene in heaven, Jesus gives us the white stone with a new name. The word new is significant because it's the same word for the new heavens and the new earth, the new redemption, the new life, the new birth. 
It is that which is made again, made better, made new, made more full. It's the real thing. It's not the prelude or the warm-up anymore. The name that you have now is a name, and it may actually be fitting, but ahead of you, coming your way, is a new name, a new, redeemed, new heavens and earth kind of name with the same kind of meaning that our forefathers in the Bible had. A meaning that will bring together all of the pieces of your life. The spine-tingling moment when you read the name and look into his eyes and for the first time you understand that's what that was all about. That's what he was doing in all of those hurts and all of those successes, all of those desires and dreams all of the events and stations of my life, it all makes sense. That is what he was doing in me. It's the name that is the ultimate healing and restoration of everything in your life and everything that Christ was doing all of those years. And about his story, the story that he was writing in time and space in your life, and the way that he was communicating himself and the gospel to you and to the world through you. That he is prepared not just for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Peter and Mary and David and Melchizedek and all those other names, not just for them, but for all of the billions of people in the world that he has and will call to himself. For each one of them, he has a name and an identity, and a story, and a meaning of the role and the place that he prepared for them in their life. It says that we'll be known only to him and to you, which frankly is a little disappointing to me because I'm excited to share my name with you guys. But I think... I think that hints at the intimacy of the name. Jesus says, here's your name. Shh, don't tell anybody. It's your thing with you and him. And when all the billions of us are gathered together in the great city and Jesus passes by and we're all giving worship, there's that moment of eye contact between him and you. And you know, that he knows. He knows even better than you ever knew, than anyone ever knew who you are and what he was saying to the world in you. Your name. Your true name and meaning and place in the story. The half verse begins with a conditional clause, to the one who conquers which is always a little bit uncomfortable, oh, because this only happens to those who, who conquer. Well, I doubt that any of us feel like we've really just sort of conquered life. Uh, but let me comfort you with a little bit about what I think that means. Jesus is also the one who conquers or overcomes in Revelation. And so to be who one who conquers or overcomes means 
really to be identified with Jesus. That he maintained his identity through thick and thin, through no matter what people said, he held on. And to be a conqueror is to be a Jesus sort of person. Really, it means just to be identified with Jesus. And if all of the rest of what we've been saying about the name is true, then it really means that you refuse to be named by anyone else. That conquering means continuing to refuse to receive any other name, to wait for the real name, to refuse to be identified by anyone or anything else, by jeeps or friends or enemies or hurts or successes. That the one who conquers is the one who can hold out and wait and know. No, there's, better, there's something better coming. There's one who's telling the story, and I'm waiting for that. I'm conquering. I'm overcoming. I'm camping out here. I'm waiting for that name. And for those who can wait and who are willing to be named by the one who gives all names, the name will come. So what do we do with this? Well, I've kind of hinted at it already. The first thing I want you to know and remember and be comforted by is that your hurts and your enemies and your failures are not your name. They are not your name. They are not your identity. At the end of the day, they are not the essence of who you are. Your legal record, the things you wish that other people didn't know about, that's not who you are. Just a couple days ago, I was driving over the mountain in the car with Susie, and we were chatting about our life. And I said, I know that everyone is messed up, but I feel like we are especially messed up. There's like a a spiritual disability section. I feel like that's our section. And I meant it as a kind of self-deprecating humor because there's certain ways that I was hurt by my family growing up, and so I tend to still kind of act out of that in not-so-helpful ways. And there's certain ways that Susie was hurt by her family, and sometimes she tends to act out of that in not-so-helpful ways. And what's really bad is that, is that those things combine in some really not helpful ways, as in like they feed off of each other. And that's what I was pondering at that moment. I just feel like there's messed up and then there's us. <laughs> and she was hurt by that. And in studying this passage, I asked her if I could share that little story because she's right. That in my moment of self-deprecating humor, what I was really doing is saying, we are what happened to us, and we can't get out of it. And she feels like we have a pretty good relationship. And she's right, because at the end of the day, that's not who we are. And it's not right for me to say, this, this is us. This is our name. For those who are holding out and waiting for the new name on the white stone, 
Those who have things against you, who've torn you down, they don't get the right to name you. Well, if that's true, I also want to remind you and maybe even challenge you a little bit that your successes also don't get to name you. Sometimes we have dreams. And if they don't come true, which sometimes they don't, and you're not careful with your heart in the gospel, that can really mess you up. And sometimes we have dreams, and sometimes they do come true. And if you're not careful with your heart and the gospel, that can really mess you up. Because whatever things you have amassed and whatever retirement account you have with big digits and successful children and successful titles and corporate ladders, those also are not your name. And there's plenty of examples of high and important people in the New Testament who Jesus warns while they're still alive, this is not your identity in heaven, my friend. And so just as we need to not be crushed or identified by our hurts, there's a warning to not allow ourselves the false comfort, inflating pride that comes with naming ourselves by that which we feel so good about. Finally, I want to point out to you that not only do your failures not name you and your successes don't name you, you don't name you. And that is maybe the hardest thing of all. That the good name that is given to us is given to us by someone else. And you must be willing to receive the name that he has for you. Really what I want you to do is what I want to do is invite you to the joyful freedom of not really knowing who you are. Because we don't know yet. We won't know until we see the name at the end. The story is still being written. He is still at work. I actually think, as I mentioned earlier, we are in an age when we are all particularly desperate to have some form of identity and we'll grab at anything around us, be it relationships, which is one of the huge dreams of our culture, that I can find someone and then I can become someone. They will complete me. Which, if you're single, just leaves you, leaves you with a struggle that maybe you're not someone because you don't have someone, and none of that is true. It's all ways of trying to name ourselves by people or products or dreams or identities or stories. It might be that you actually have a pretty good idea who you are. You might, you might be pretty close at this point in your life. But just remember, the story is not done yet. The baby who was born and became king, or the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, he's the one who gets to give you your name. John, the Apostle John, the same one who wrote Revelation, tells us in the Gospel of John that there was a moment at the Last Supper when John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, got to recline at the table against Jesus' breast. And people always snicker 
when I tell that story, especially high school students. And I get why, because we don't really do that in our culture, and, and for a bunch of reasons, it's hugely uncomfortable. But let me just be honest about the fact that that's what I want. And I hope, I hope that it's what you want. That moment with Jesus where you get to recline against his breast and you know that he knows. And all of those hurts, which matter, he was doing something good. And at the end of the day, no one else and nothing else gets to name you, but he alone and your name will be good. Let's pray.